panel will bring us clarity into those very complex matters, we hope. Uh, and this panel, I should say, is also actually the conclusion of two days of deep reflection and discussion on exactly these issues on uh, Christianity and nationalism. But um, I want to introduce to you this very prominent and competent uh, panel that will take us through these matters tonight. Our guide will be uh, very renowned and um, prominent Swedish author and journalist Göran Rosenberg. Welcome. And on my left side here you can see the panel and here immediately right beside me we have um, Professor Valentina Valpolit Napolitano, who is the Professor of Anthropology at the University of Toronto. And next to her, a dear colleague of mine, you find Torniki Metrivelli, who is a postdoc researcher, actually connected very close to this research platform, Nationalism and Christianity. But your main subject is sociology. And then we have Professor Elizabeth Schachmann Hurd, uh, a professor of religious studies and political science at the Northwestern University in Chicago. And finally, we have Ulrich Miedel, who is a senior lecturer in um, ethics and political theology at the University of Edinburgh. And I really, together with all of you who has come here, I think, really look forward to hear you uh, reflect and ponder upon these heavy and important questions. Very much welcome. Thank you so much, Johanna. And uh, I don't know if I should thank you for um, inviting me to do this, because I always say yes to these things, realizing that I won't be up to the task at the end, because we have been through two days of quite uh, interesting, but also quite heavy uh, stuff, uh, with so many perspectives, so much information, so much thought. Uh, it's not, and it doesn't all sort of come together in a nice, neat uh, thing to summarize at the end. And then when they call me and say, well, we don't know how to summarize this, so could you please come in? I don't know either, and we won't. We won't summarize this. I can just tell you that, that we have been expanding on on, on issues that uh, broadly, broadly uh, comes under the title that you have seen advertised, uh, which is uh, Christianity, Christianity and crisis in a European context. That could be, as you can understand, anything. And in the very last session, we were a bit reprimanded for not specifying that this is indeed Western Christianity, and perhaps it's a Western crisis. And why should we, uh, this I add, why should we limit ourselves to a European context? 
But I will try nevertheless because I believe truly that we have a situation where this, this, uh, this general title has validity. And uh, because it brings out some of the, I think within this we can discuss some of the really uh, urgent and current uh, themes that we have. You may call it crisis, you may call it something else, but we have a sense <laughs> of urgency, I would say, in most of our societies, in at least Europe and in America, and I would say perhaps elsewhere too. My point of departure, let me put it, I'm not, as you know, an academic, but I'm interested in these things, and I do write occasionally about things that are, 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 are pertaining to these issues. But my point of departure is that we truly have a, a real crisis, and it's a wide crisis, and it's a crisis in human organization. It's the way we organize our societies. We have been, uh, we have been safe in the belief that we haven't reached the final way of organizing societies, then at least we, we thought we knew how to do it. And then we could fail, and then we could improve, and so, and so on. But I think we are at a point where we doubt, and it has been going on for some time, that we are doing it well. And we see now all kinds of, of symptoms that one would call, I would at least call, crisis. And I would then say that this loss of certainty in our ability to do things well as is a breeding ground for all kinds of bad things. Uh, mass delusions, mass conspiracy theories, uh, lies, uh, and people uh, beginning. And of course, then we come to even worse things like, like wars and conflicts. Uh, and some of these delusions and conspiracy theories use and abuse religious symbols, notions, uh, as a way of mobilizing, as way of inciting, as ways of uh, sacralizing, we will come back to that, violence and war even. So what do we have in this title? And I want to go through this. We have Christianity. I would widen that to religion. We have crisis. And we have European context, which I, because we are a broad panel, I will widen to American context as well, because I think they are, in a way, connected. And when it comes to the first one, Christianity, we have had a very interesting debate. I pick the things I find interesting. But we have had, it, uh, in some of the presentations, a discussion of the secular and religious. And we have seen how the secular has been problematized, if you so wish. And we have been enriched with notions like uh, secular religion or uh, uh, religious secularism even. And I, I myself have been quite, uh, uh, I have observed that we are, uh, Sweden in particular is a country that has, has, um, has, has uh, call itself a secular society. But we have seen, and we have increasingly seen, how the secular has been pitched against, uh, well, the religious, as it say, but at the same time, it has unveiled a, a fervor that sometimes could be called religious as well. A kind of secular 
aggressive sectoralism. So my first question or my first issue that I want to raise with this, this distinguished panel is, um, is it, and one of the suggestions that was raised during this discussion was, are we coming to a point where secularism is some, uh, becoming more aware of its inherent uh, potential for, and potential, or, or rather, an ability to see itself in a religious perspective as part of a landscape of beliefs and faith and religions? And where, 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 where do we go from here? Uh, because we have come to a point where religious, uh, uh, religious um, conflicts and religious strifes uh, has been mi mixed with a new forms of secularism, secular nationalisms uh, that, that have religious connotations. So where we are suddenly in a situation where the secular and religious are uh, somehow re in, in, a, in a bad dynamics with each other, reinforcing some, some bad tendencies. So I would like to start with uh, Elizabeth. I know you have written plenty about the secular and religious. And when I asked you about this, when we met, I said, well, this was a long time ago. I'm now at the U.S.-Mexican border doing some other stuff. Yeah, I'm but, doing other yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but There's no such thing as secularism. There's a lot of secularists and claims to the secular and discourses that uh, lay claims to the secular. But I want to encourage everyone to kind of take apart the idea that there is one thing called secularism that's out there that's like this pop there isn't secularism is a political discourse. It's a it's a language. It's a way of talking. Um, it is a way of making claims. And what it involves is a very particular attempt to define religion as something that's out there, and then define a certain way of relating to it. Whether it is something that is to be pushed out of the public, out of our legal systems, out of our public sphere, or whether it is to be accommodated. And that entire process and that entire discursive formation, the secular and the religious, they go together. You can't have one without the other. Remember that old song? Maybe not. So um, it's really important to think about secularism, I think, as this political language in which many people, not all people, use to discuss religious affairs and the role of religion in modernity and the role of religion in modern societies and modern states and we need to kind of step back from the idea that it is one thing and rather look at the ways in which secularism is used or secular claims are put into play in order to make certain kinds of arguments in the public. Um, so that's the, the you know, two second introduction. I would also just you, you want can to push go back. On. It's not two seconds. Can okay. I push back yeah, sure. on something that this is new? So my book on the politics of secularism came out in 2008. Yeah. That's not new. No, um, I, I said, and so, I said that, yeah. uh, that, that when I asked you about it, you said that was fair. way back. That was way it's back. It's way back. So yeah. the thing is that this sort of, am I making that feedback? That's really annoying, sorry. This, the tension that we're describing, this kind of inflammatory oppositional tension between secular folks and religious folks, I think is, in a large extent, kind of a fantasy. I think most people identify in a more complex way in relation to these terms. They may say, well, I'm a secularist, but I'm religious, or I'm, I'm secular, but my grandparents are Jewish, and we, we have a lot of traditions that we practice in my household. So, I mean, this kind of question, I think, is it requires a lot of 
kind of just like calming the waters. Everyone take a deep breath um, because it tends to stir things up when I think what we really need to do is calm it down. There's just one more thing I want to say. Um, when you were speaking and introducing this notion, I was just at, uh, at UC Santa Barbara two weeks ago for a book workshop on a new book that's precisely on this topic, which you framed so nicely, and it's called The Secular Paradox on the Religiosity of the Non-Religious. So it is actually doing exactly what you just expressed, which is to place secularism and secularists on a kind of spectrum of theological politics, we could say. And that everyone is, is inevitably in this kind of messy world where we're trying to sort out what we mean by religion in a globalized world. What do we mean by the secular? Do we mean some kind of pluralism, some kind of neutral space above the religious? What exactly do we mean? And nobody knows. But this book is an ethnography by Joe Blinkham. It's an ethnography of the secularists and the atheists and the humanists that are living now in the U.S. and are organizing in communities, which is kind of this like great paradox, which is where he got his title, because it's like herding cats, right? I mean, here, we're going to organize ourselves around what we don't believe. So we are the non-religion people. We're the people that are not about religion. But they can't agree with each other because, of course, they can't agree about what they don't believe because that's not that easy because then you have to decide, what do you mean by it? Well, I don't mean you can't celebrate holidays. And the other guy's like, what do you mean? You can't even say, bless you, after someone sneezes. So, you know, no one agrees in these, in these groups. And so I think that kind of putting it in, like I said, taking the volume down, putting it in context, having a sense of humor, and then thinking about the kinds of claims that are made in the name of secularism, as opposed to secularism as this object but, that sits out there. It's really where we need to be. People are not sitting down. They are not being calm. They are being very agitated. And so, and, and so the, the question, and I would rather... Some people are agitated. Yeah, no, but uh, they, we, let's, let's, let me forward this question to Tornike Metavelio oh. sits here. Yeah. Uh, we have seen, we're all witnessing how, how uh, what we or at least recently perceived as a as a secular state, once used to be a communist state, so that's secular as it can be, uh, has, has uh, mobilized and uh, sacralized and used the church to sacralize a very, um, well, well, now it's not a secular project, now it's a religious project too, the, the war, the Russian war. And I, let's go to the, to, the, to, the, to the Eastern European context where, the discussion that I think Elizabeth and I and at least I am having is a very Euro European phenomenon that we have thought that we could just push religion onto the private and the rest of the societies is somehow secular. But we are now seeing the reassertion or the refusion of, of religious notions of church with an aggressive uh, national uh, posture. I would call it secular in the sense that, that it's... Uh, it's political. It's purely political. What's your what's what's your perspective on, on, on how 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 uh, religion and 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 the secular have reconnected in 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 the context of, of the of the Ukrainian uh, war? Yeah, thank you very much. I think it's extremely valid question, especially given the context in which we have a history where church and state were separated in the Soviet Union, where again after Soviet repression, religion was put in place basically under control of state. Then we have a reemergence of religion, 
when priests suddenly become important political actors and political elites in not just Soviet Union, but also in the former Yugoslavia, became sort of prone to more venile political practices, whether in funding or in you know, symbolic level, being flirting on and off with, with, um, with churches because they suddenly became a source of legitimacy, source of success for elections. And having that context in mind, and maybe rewinding to 30 years later, we have a political elite in, in the context of Russia, which doesn't recognize the existence of another neighboring state as an independent entity. And religion is, is used as a mechanism for legitimizing kind of neo-imperialist claims. But also, which is, I think, very important, is not to reduce the role of religion to being just an instrument of the state, but also being an actual actor in its own making. So religion has a lot to offer to the, in this case, the Kremlin in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also religion has its own interests in Ukraine because Ukraine belongs to the canonical territory of Russia, which basically is overwhelmingly a source of the religious problem. What does it mean to kind of unpack this canonical territory concept? It means that religious borders of the Russian church do not necessarily match the Russian borders of Russian state. And this ambiguity is a source of the problem and a kind of the constant war-making capacity of, of this religion. I think if we kind of zoom out, again, this is a, in, from, I don't know, Grand Schism until today, this is a broader problem in all Orthodox countries, but as, as you rightly pointed out, this became very vocalized and, any, and, and media coverage has more emphasized on things that we've been working on and researching for years and years. Yeah, but that, that it is one, on one hand an Orthodox, clearly an Orthodox problem because we have this uh, this this role that the, the, the Russian Orthodox Church historically has played. But as I as I dare to assert in the beginning, we do have a crisis that is larger than 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 uh, that uh, that transcends. Let's let's put it by the the, the the specific situation, which is I would. This is, I would say, a, a crisis of meaning, a crisis of, of place, a crisis of, and that's probably a very strong, I would assume, a strong crisis in 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 a, in a semi-failed state like Russia, where people uh, have have um, lost the sense of, and then comes religion, or then comes these uh, uh, thought uh, old symbols and old myth, and are used again to reinfuse uh, whatever project with 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 that it 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 it, it seems to be happening in, in the states as well and i would i would call this a spiritual crisis in humanity i'm really taking big words in my mind but i i think valentina would share that that uh, notion because you, 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 you yeah and, and a spirit a spiritual crisis I know that. And then, how do you? How would you define our present situation uh, um, as as we speak? I think that there is a crisis of humanitas, which is a particular concept of the Catholic Church, which has you know has a got a long history of related to a particular form of missionism. I mean, do I talk to them? Yes, I talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the perspective is important. Uh, it, which has got a long history of missionization, but also had exactly that idea that uh, the missions were done originally, you know, thinking especially in an Atlantic frame. So we're thinking, you know, the relation to the, to the Americas. Um, so the, 
the, the questions of like converting the other into the sameness of the self. So that was originally the work of Bartolomeo de las Casas, Jose de Acosta, and you know, the first Jesuit, by the way, in a Dominican missionary. But retaining that idea so that everybody could be converted. So the idea of universal Catholic Church has got that mission. One side has got that missionary route, which is everything, everybody could potentially become. Catholic. So that humanitas is in crisis. And, you know, we saw it, I hope, we saw it especially with Benedict XVI, who, you know, at one level I had to admit a great theologian for lots of things, but it was really where he was championing that uh, idea that once again of this Catholic humanitas as an encompassing. And um, at the same time, having particular problems to really understanding within the church how humanitas is also composed by many different gender, racialized position. You know, now we will look also less able bodies. So it was also been a discussion within the particular the Catholic Church, where I've kind of been working more, you know, my work has been around the Roman Catholic Church is to think also what are the catechesis and the pedagogies that start from the body of women, from the racialized body, but also from a body which has got a different history. And one of the problems, I'm saying ethnographically, so to bring a story, uh, in my work in Rome with the kind of, um, particular with the Scalabrinians, who were this order that took uh, care a lot of um, Latin American migrants in Rome, but many other different migrants. There was a crying out of some of the uh, priests working and said, like, we don't have that discussion. And if you think about, particularly, I don't know what's, what's the situation in Sweden, but a lot of the work of caring is done by transnational labor and is often feminized. What does he mean, feminized? That either is it female, or it is a type of work that is done by male, but that kind of there is a form of de-skilling. So there was also an internal debate, uh, well, a kind of crying out to some priests, exactly because at the level of the clerical body, the canonical body, there wasn't enough discussion and enough kind of guidance about but, but, the Catholic Church probably has as many problems that one can see, but you mm. you somehow assume that once mm. it had this ideal that mm. you call humanitas. But mm. I would ask you, I don't know if you would, if if the, the crisis of the Catholic Church in in many ways is is a part of the same uh, spiritual crisis that that we see uh, taking whole other forms where where people's longing for whatever. Uh, security, uh, uh, hope, uh, something will take new forms, and and uh, the, the Catholic Church obviously hasn't been able to sustain. Uh, maybe never had, but it was a nice ideal to have this universal, and that somehow uh, maybe I don't know enough about that. For some period of time in history, uh, it had that effect at least. At some parts of the world, that it brought people from together in a way that that no other idea perhaps could. Uh, I think that actually uh, it wasn't. It was a projection, of course. It never happened, but really was the constitutional idea of self and others. So exactly the idea of guest and host is based on that 
potential humanitas that somebody can always ultimately be recognized under certain forms of recognition as Catholicism. So, I mean, it never existed as completely, but as an idea is still percolating. As an, as an, inclusion, as an inclusionary Christianity, can one, uh, can one say no, that? No, a binary Christianity, I would say. You know, either yourself or other. That's, okay. That okay. is a very different idea than inclusionary. It's, it's, you know, either you are, you know, either you're Christian Catholic or you are something else, yeah. which is the opposite. So, I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm just saying it as, as a point of, um, you know, it's it much more complex, but I think that that idea of humanitas is a, a very colonial idea. That's what I'm trying to say. The humanitas idea. Yeah. Very colonial. I'm st and I'm still st a residue that we were talking. So the coloniality that, sorry, no, no, no. But the <laughs> idea of the colonialism is not ended. We are in a period of what we call coloniality of power. So that there are the residues of categories of uh, material forms of architecture, of um, what is called ambient fate, of things that do exist and we do not realize that have that kind of colonial everything. Foolish. Uh, I, I want to come back to my, my before in Momon. I, I, I want to have, uh, from a theological perspective, um, explain or at least analyze this emerging fusion between. Um, religious notions and symbols and narratives and uh, uh, very exclusionary uh, and very nationalist and very uh, f forms of politics, one could say, you know, we've seen clearly in the United States, but we've seen it in Europe as well, and we see it everywhere. And my, my question really is, uh, how, does it, how does that affect the way theology uh, thinks uh, and works, because many of these notions are theological notions. They are taken from, from the Bible, they are taken from whatever source, and they are used for, for terrible purposes. We know that that always can, has happened in history, that's of course the Inquisition and the Crusades and whatever, but is there any does it have any power left to do the opposite? And would you give me, an, or anyone can think of them, will you find any examples today where uh, it can sort of fight back? The same heritage could reassert itself in a different way. Um, before I answer, let me quickly say uh, for everybody who was looking forward to seeing Jose Casanova. Ah, of course, we should have said that. I'm right, sorry for right. the disappointment. Sorry, uh, I didn't say that. As the German accent give it, gives it away, I'm not Jose Casanova. Jose, Jose, that that we should have said. Jose Casanova has uh, is ill in COVID, so he is he is he really has had to excuse himself. Um, but Ulrich is. Uh, and so I found out there's no such thing as a free lunch um, <laughs> invited. Right. But let me let me come back to your, to your question. You. I think it's really interesting. I think the first point you made it already is to say this has actually never been different uh, throughout history. So I don't think we now live in a moment where all of a sudden Christianity mm -hmm. is claimed for political things more than it was in the past. And also I wouldn't say it's now worse than it was in the past. We can through so go through so many examples of um, the usage of Christianity for, for political purposes that we would say are, are um, terrible, horrible, um, shocking. Um, so I, I think that is important, and it is important 
to me for a normative reason. I think so. One of the one of the um, arguments one often hears is about that. For instance, the far right. I've done a bit of, of work on on the religion in the far right. That the far right has sort of hijacked Christianity, is sort of instrumentalizing Christianity. And on in one way, I I say it would be fantastic if it was so easy, because <laughs> then as a theologian I could say, see, it's not my problem, because it's clearly not the real Christianity. It's not the true religion that's being used by the far right. But unfortunately, drawing that distinction between an honest Christianity and a hijacked Christianity, that's a very difficult distinction to draw. And I think that's important because that means as, a theo as theologians, we have work to do here. And that would be self-critical work. That would mean working through the archive and seeing where you have all those moments um, within the Christian traditions that lent themselves for, say, in the broad sense, exclusionary um, mm. politics. Um, and then I think that's the, the second part of your question. Are there moments of, um, of resistance? Of, are there moments mm -hmm. where religion works mm -hmm. against these um, exclusionary policies, politics? I think Not moments. I want to see if there are also movements that actually can be yes, effect I think, effective. I think one movement I've, I've, I'm working with at the moment, um, <clears throat> founded in Sweden by the, the Archbishop uh, Martin Jacqueline, is, is called A World of Neighbors. And that's a multi-faith refugee relief network that's operative all over Europe now. And um, it's not a Christian movement. It was started by the Church of Sweden, mm. but from the beginning set up as a multi-religious movement. So it includes Jews, Christians, Muslims, atheists. Um, and they're coming together. They're interested in the power that their religions bring to set a counterforce to, let's say, the policy of death that the European Union is dealing out on the Mediterranean Sea. Right, so there I, I would see a movement um, that, that is using their faiths in the plural, and also their non-faiths, bringing us back to the question of, of religion and secular, to resist those policies. But the, I think these faiths, they don't stay unchanged in the process. So I don't think we can sort of pick a specific Christian teaching or, or, and, and say that's our, that's our anchor, that's our safety point, if we only stick to that we will be able to resist. I think all of these anchor points, they can be used in all sorts of ways. Um, it, it hangs together with certain practices and the change is constant. I don't yeah, think I, 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 sometimes I would like to have a name, I would like to have a, a, an example, but we had an example today in, yeah, I'll, I'll bring you yeah, soon. Yeah. Well, but we had an example today, I will, I will bring in Tony first, yeah. and, but you can, I just uh, want to add something. Okay, do that, first. do that first. Do that first. I'm just thinking the example of, I, I just finished writing something on Marcus Rashford. Does anybody know here yeah. Marcus Rashford, footballer, black footballer? So look at look at black sportsmen in the sportship in, in, in Europe. It's so interesting. Lots of Christian windrush, so coming from the Caribbean back to Europe, if you can think about return. Incredible political force. And they are very sort of paradoxical because often, you know, they are endorsed by Mulberry, you know, they're endorsed by, you know, big brand. And also they are extremely Christian political. And for example, in, 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 in the UK, Mark Rashford changed the politics at some point of Boris Johnson populist politics and asked him, it managed to change. He completely sort of slashed the vouchers, free <laughs> vouchers for, for children. 
Well, the political force of Max Garash would be so interesting. So that's there a, are examples, and perhaps in Sweden as well. I well, don't that's, know that's terribly interesting. I will stay. I will. I will continue this, yeah, and yeah, now no, we'll go back to that <laughs> because what you are suggesting is that we'll, we'll, we should look for celebrities, good celebrities. Suddenly, <laughs> we have one huge spiritual celebrity. I I would like to raise him. I will do. That's the Pope, Pope Francis, which I think has has been a counterforce in in so many ways. So, so that, but, but the, 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 in our example, and this is why I want to bring in Toneke to, to perhaps, and this brings me to a very uncomfortable um, thinking that maybe we need some terrible crisis in order for things to turn to the better. Ukraine, we heard one, a very interesting uh, 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 paper about the the the. the the sudden the turn of Jose Casanova, I think, who spoke about Ukraine turning into a multi-denominational, uh, pluralistic uh, society where no religion is considered the majority religion. All, all religions have sort of a place around the ecumenical Ukrainian table, Jews, Catholics, this orthodox, that orthodox, and it seems to work. But it seems to have been come about, as I assume, by seeing the evil example of what happens. Do you understand? Not not the war itself, but even before the war, the threat against against the, the way of life of the Ukrainians, and then they reorganize themselves in a way that is unique. I understand in. At least, according to Jose Casanova, this has never happened. How much do you know? Could you talk talk a little bit about that? Because I thought it was very inspiring. Yeah, thanks. Uh, first of all, I'm really happy as a diehard Man United fan to discover that Marcus Rashford <laughs> can emerge on a panel where I'm sitting here. Um, uh, on the darker side, of course, of, of a political of political yeah. life, um, is, is, is this is a very relevant, of, of course, Jose's research throughout the last 30 years showed this competitive nature of Ukrainian religious field, and that is empirically proven. So Ukraine, unlike any other Orthodox country in, in the world, has a competitiveness between several Orthodox churches. So it re very much echoes the American religious market in a way. So there is no one dominant church, Orthodox church. For example, in Serbia or in Russia or in Georgia and other Orthodox countries, Bulgaria, Romania, etc., there is one hegemonic Orthodox church, which is around 80%, 85% affiliation, and also has a financial monopoly. And Ukraine doesn't have this religious um, one kind of dominant player. And it's interesting, of course, it's tied not just to the current context, but to pre-communist and even before uh, when, uh, when Western Ukraine was under influence of more Western Christianity, while East stayed more in, under influence of the Russian Christianity. So... There is a lot of historical context why such religious field exists. Now the question is what happens today and how that affects this religious field and will that result into something of a reverse trajectory? Will Ukraine become more nationalist? Will the Ukrainian Orthodox Church become more like Russian Orthodox Church, allied with the state and kind of pillar of nationalism? This, of course, remains to be an open question, and it's probably for the for the next round of questions. But again, depending on the war outcomes, it will be definitely de determined a very important kind of direction where the church can take. Again, this competition has shaped both Ukrainian national identity 
but also the role of religion in the in the secular polity. Unlike other churches, unlike other Orthodox countries in Ukraine, religion was not a part, a vital part of Ukrainian national identity. Language played this role, not religion. So historically, Ukrainian language was more like a pillar of what being Ukrainian means. If, for example, we zoom into the you know, Serbian or Georgian or Russian context, very often being Russian, being Georgian, in some symbolic, mysterious ways, be equals being Orthodox and vice versa. Ukrainian situation is very different from, from, from the, those cases. Being Orthodox never meant to be Ukrainian and vice versa. So this is another interesting dynamics which can be kind of affected by the structural changes which are ongoing now in Ukraine. Very interesting. And I, I would come back to this because I would, would also, maybe we can at least speculate about it, whether the war in Ukraine can have Let's, it's, it's, it's cynical to say, but might have some inspiring positive effects in Europe as a whole. Seeing, you know, seeing evil is sometimes good for, for bringing forth the good. It, but I, 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 will, I will first actually, um, since Jose Casanova is not here, I, I, I took the liberty to, to, to note a piece from his, his paper, and I'll read it because it's, I think it, it really says it well. All the religious traditions possess within their own sacred texts and within their collective, their, the, the hermeneutic sources and the moral practical sources, not only to exit religious violence, but also to serve as powerful prophetic critique uh, against modern secular ideologies, which tend either to either sacralize, to, to tend to either sacralize either state violence and unjust established structures of dominations of forms of of forms of libertarian revolutionary violence against oh well, against it comes a long sentence against sociopolitical national or international establishment. Anyway, he places a lot of of hope in a kind of a spiritual reawakening. I'm very open to this language, which I just wrote a biography of a rabbi who, who was burning for the spiritual reawakening. <clears throat> Not only Judaism, but, but the whole of humanity. Anyway, a spiritual reawakening uh, in the wake of a looming disaster. Is that anything anyone who wants to touch that that topic? Because uh, you, Elizabeth, you, I, I'll go on you yeah. because you live in the United <laughs> States of America. We're just one you see disaster. You see disaster approaches. It's coming. Yeah, I think the climate crisis is really what I'm thinking of yeah. and have been thinking of. And in fact, when I saw the title of this conference, I thought it was about climate crisis. Um, because in my world, that is really the dominant crisis, the dominant existential anxiety. If there is a spiritual crisis, it's an ecological one. So that's what that brings to mind for me. Um, I do think we have, as you put it very well, I think, uh, a problem of how we live together. And I don't think that dividing people up into religious and secular helps us to solve those problems, but usually ends up exacerbating them. Um, so I'm interested in talking about a human crisis um, and a spiritual crisis, an existential crisis, an ecological crisis. Um, and more than I am, I think, talking about the ways either uh, secular ideologies or religious traditions are going to solve anything. Um, so I, I find the binary to get in the way for think of thinking for me at this point. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't contributions made by um, important people who identify as this, that, or the other tradition. 
Um, just that I think we should focus on the problems that we face and the resources that we need to tackle them. Yeah, but the we, as I was, as I dare to ask during one of the session, is is a bit uh, elusive. Yes. What, uh, what, and I wouldn't. I, I really would have come back to that later. But maybe I'll touch upon what, who are we? What, what where is human agency in all this? I think uh, theology and 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 politics too is eventually about human agency. What 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 human beings should or could do with their lives here and now improve the world, not improve, it's always about what we as human beings can do. But we always do it in some context, we always have the institutions, we have the movements, we have parties, we have churches, we have this, civil society, you name it. What I see, not lacking, but I don't see it, I don't see the agents for changing this trajectory, mm -hmm. the ominous trajectory, that we are on climate-wise, in politics, I don't see any good political development anywhere. I'm sorry, maybe I don't see it. Oh no, someplace. that's too dark. Yeah, it's too dark. So enlighten <laughs> me, please. Too dark. So where is it? Where is the good? Go see Stacey Abrams. Go <laughs> yeah, but she hasn't out. won. She hasn't won. She might lose. To this, she uh, might lose, but her this, movement uh, isn't moving. What? Look at the Bernie movement. Do you know the? They, the, the they are losing. No, no, no. It's not all about, it's not always just who won and who lost a particular election. No, Bernie didn't win that election, right? No, no. he's I mean, not going to win another win an one. election in the state. Someone else might. Uh, that, that can carry out these things. Because you know your country as better than I do. You know the public opinion. You know what's going on there. Uh, so Bernie Sanders, sorry, excuse me, he's not going to change this. No, I'm not talking about the individual. I'm yeah. talking about the movement. movement. Okay. The movement that he represented, the sense of uh, empowerment that people who had never felt empowered before felt as a result of that movement, the possibilities in American political discourse, and I'll just give one example. What can you say about U.S. foreign policy toward Israel, and what can you not say? Mm -hmm. Now, the parameters of those, those boundaries are policed very closely and carefully. Bernie uh, and his team made a very careful set of statements um, that he was in a good position to make as an American, as a Jewish American, that allowed those boundaries to shift just a little bit for a little while. And so what interests me is not the fate of any single individual, but the broader parameters of the system and what is permittable, what's imaginable. What's, what's something that we could reach for and that could be a different path? And it's creating those different paths and those possibilities that I think where we have to look, where we have to put our energies. And I, I think that a lot of the people who were empowered in that movement um, did go on. Well, first of all, everyone was very disappointed, obviously. So I won't, I won't say that we weren't. But I do think a lot of them have gone on to try to continue organizing in different venues, in different places, not necessarily at the presidential level, um, for those ideals. And I think that's what we have to hold on to, is the possibility of those forms of community coming together. We're seeing that right now in the wake of the Dobbs decision overturning of Roe v. Wade in June. We're seeing communities coming together, people coming together who maybe never thought they would be publicly or politically active, we, and not just women, um, all kinds of different folks are coming together. And I think that we're seeing a moment where, uh, you know, we're going to see some 
new forms of political mobilization, new forms of political action, and new forms of solidarity that cross lines that have been, you know, boundaries that have been difficult to cross in the past in American history for a lot of reasons. So I'm optimistic, yeah, but I that. think that's all in the context of the ecological crisis, which is, I'm not at all optimistic about that. So it's within the limited horizon. Okay, Ulish, I saw you, and then Valentina. Yeah, yeah, sure, Ulish for a bit before oh, no. you. And go, then, go, 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 Ulish, and then Valentina, I, that's fine. I thought one thing that might be important is to take a little step back um, with the talk about crisis um, and several crises. Uh, crises. Uh, I think it's true, like Reinhard Kozelik, I think, has shown this nicely, that the crisis, the, the idea that we're always in a crisis is coterminous with modernity. It begins with modernity and runs through it. We're always in crises. Talking about crises, normally a crisis asks you to do something very drastic in response. It's either this or that. And I'm wondering whether framing the problems that we have in terms of crisis might, you know, darken or, or cloud some of the possibilities of response. The, the second question I have there, whose crises are we talking about? Um, so we had a, in one of the, we had this whole list of different crises on, on, on one of the, of the slides. Um, and so in Sweden, I think it's a good example to talk about the refugee crisis. So that's not a Swedish crisis. And, and from Germany, it's also not a German crisis. The refugee crisis, if there is such a thing as a refugee crisis, it's the crisis of the people who are fleeing. And so it's not a Swedish crisis. 90% of uh, the global displaced population is housed in the majority world, not in the, in the global north and not in Sweden, even though Sweden has per capita the highest number of, of um, refugees taken in. But whose crises are we talking about? Why are we talking about crises? And one, one last um, quick one. Should we start, if we want to stick to the crisis, should we start connecting them? If you think about the, the climate crisis, the climate catastrophe, and that is intimately connected to the discourse of the far right that goes against this and to the discourse of certain types of nationalism. So all of a sudden, these two crises are actually one and the same thing. There's a climate racism. Um, and again, climate crisis, are we having that crisis? Or is it uh, people whose islands are sinking in the sea? It's not our crisis. We can't feel it yet. So I think we have to be very careful with the crisis rhetoric. And now the sermon is over. I, I think I, I'll, I'll give it to Valentina. That there is another word that I, you, if you use that, you probably will finish. The, you can use challenge. And then you, I think you changed the whole discourse. Valentina. I just wanted exactly to sort of give back to this question that we need to react, we need to have an agency vis-a-vis crisis. And, it, and it's exactly where I think uh, perhaps we have to shift, and how do I put it, that we have to allow to be touched. You know, what I was also saying, you know, the, the questions of, you know, realizing that we have a vulnerability in common, but also to begin to think, I think that the, what Elizabeth was talking about, it's also mobilization means like the force that really allows us to be touched by a condition <coughs> that both we share and is of others. So rather than thinking Argentina, what we have to decide, what we have to represent as politics, we have to think also politics of intimacy and distance. You know, how, for example, the you know 0.0.0.01 of the population is trying to go to the moon because it's taking a distance, is not to be touched. So if we think about how capitalism and hypercapitalism is working now, <coughs> is to take a distance. And not us, I think, interested in politics and religion and theology is exactly this movement of distance and intimacy. And that is where the politic is. 
so rather than anti-tribal. I think it's terribly important. I, I want to come back to that. We, yeah. the, the way we are touched or the way we are not being touched yeah. less than perhaps ever less so. Yeah, I had a quick counter question to Ulrich. I think he's making a very interesting yet provocative point about whose crisis is that. I mean, um, you know, 15,000 Syrians per day to Germany, how is not a German crisis? It is a German crisis, isn't it? I mean, it creates the sense of here and now, the questions of secular identity, the questions of who unveils its identity and who is unveiled. I mean, there are fundamentally structural issues which are affecting deeply and profoundly economy, uh, European economy and, and social behavior, social moments, and even the right-wing mobilization, as you can see from alternative to Deutschland or SVP in Switzerland, and etc. How is that not our crisis when we're talking to it, when we're so connected and so interrelated to social processes? This is a daunting question, isn't it? You have a debate here. So, <laughs> I think it's a really important point, um, but I'd like, again, to stay, take a step back. If we're talking about the refugee crisis there, um, I'd say that's not that Germany, I mean, Germany is such a big economy that the country is functioning very well. The number of refugees taken in, they do not constitute a crisis. That is already part of the discourse of the far right. And I think okay. this is dangerous to accept this, to say these refugees have caused a crisis to Germany. I don't think... That is true. I think that is important. However, and there I'm fully with you, of course the situation is means Germany needs to adapt or Sweden needs to adapt. Sweden actually in, in, has a larger burden per, per capita um, of refugees. But then we're talking, say, about a crisis of care, a crisis of sympathy, a crisis of empathy. Like I think that's the problem. Um, is that we've we've stopped caring, um, but we we phrase it in terms of these refugees somehow creating a crisis. I don't see it. It was quite interesting that the German government in I think 2016 um, it sort of almost split over the intake of refugees, uh, and it was the then um, Minister of Internal Affairs who said what we need to create is a working group. When you don't know what to do as a politician, you always create a working group. Um, and that working group was supposed to find out what are the limits uh, for Germany of integration. How many refugees could we take in and when are the limits reached? Mm -hmm. That working group never found a, an answer. That it, it this, this all disappeared. And I think that is interesting because if you compare it with the number of refugees in Turkey and in Jordan and so on, like how could you possibly set a limit on this as one of the richest nations in the world? So I, I think we have to be really careful in the, the sort of differentiation of cause and effect and in the framing of these issues. And that's why I'm so keen on saying this is not a refugee crisis. I'd say it's a crisis of empathy. It's a, it's a crisis of um, not wanting to be a fellow human being. It's a crisis of neighborliness, if you want to, if you want to use a Christian or a religious term. You know, it's a crisis of uh, we have a lack of love of neighbor. I just wanted to second yeah. that in the U.S. it's that it's this and much, much worse because if you look at the numbers per capita, we take in many, many, many fewer refugees and asylum seekers than does. I mean, we've been closing our borders, which is what my talk is about today. So, yes, this is framed as a, a border crisis in the U.S. by the right in order to inflame the base and to create the kinds of political mobilizations that we saw on January 6th. So this is what this is what is going on is it's an, it's, it's a baiting it's a, it's a getting the base getting people mobilized excited and angry and that crisis 
bed becomes something bigger, becomes built up. So I'm, I'm really agreeing with you that we need to actually displace and replace the language of crisis with a different set, a different problematic entirely that foregrounds the people who are truly suffering, which is the people trying to get across these borders yeah, and the people drowning in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to say something. Oh, turn the key to, uh, oh, no, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. No, you. Yeah, th then it gets us to a very kind of detailed vocabulary that we need to unfold. And it, I think that actually moves away the focus on actual context rather than the content. I mean, content rather than the context of the word. So the crisis for me is when there is a problem of integrating people and when the government is failing the people who are moving. And we can call it crisis of empathy. I'm not... I'm not obsessive or I'm not belonging to the methodological fetishists about, you know, just being very careful with words kind of thing. Absolutely, I can give you that. I will. We can say a crisis of empathy. But that doesn't kind of reduces that there is actually a crisis. And that can be an appealing thing to the voters of SVP or the voters for uh, Alternative for Deutschland. What I'm trying to get is, do we, are, are we, are, are we having this, are, are we on the same kind of analytical framework here that uh, is this crisis invented? or it doesn't exist. I think it, it exists. I mean, there are levels, and maybe we can have divergences between the scale and scope of it, but not recognizing it, I think it, it's, a, it's a challenge because it actually downgrades this complexity of the problem. It, it, can it also be, I think, uh, may, may I add to this, and this is what I started my whole my introduction with, are we underestimating or, or are we not re seeing that this crisis can also be spiritual in a larger sense, which means people lack of meaning and belonging and this and that. This can be real. It can be in their imagination that there is a loss and that loss can be attributed to immigration or to the big banks or to whatever you will find that will explain simply a, a, a fundamental changing in our social organizations that people make people uh, feel, you can say, globalization as it was. So if by, by, by doing what, but saying what you're saying, it's a crisis of empathy, you make us bad people. Yeah. And I think that's an, not <laughs> exactly. a good, yeah, yeah, it doesn't make a good political uh, position to say you are bad people, be good. But how do you address, or do you think it's at all necessary to address these needs, maybe use, a theological or another language to reach them, to touch them, and to make them see that their crisis or their their needs are not incompatible with the needs of the stranger. That's a it's a tall order, I know, but you have to. I think you have to see. Look in Sweden; we have twenty percent voting for a party that wants to basically throw out to the foreigners. Um. There's lots of stuff going on. I, I, it, I do want to say, so 2022, most likely, according to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, will for the first time have 100 million people fleeing. So that is, like, that there is a situation that needs to be addressed is um, absolutely clear. Um, since 2010, the same, UNHCR has been warning that the solutions that we have to cope with displacement um, are not enough given the rising numbers. So it's also not something that all of a sudden fell on us in 2015 when, when lots of people were leaving Syria. This is, a, a, in, in that sense, is it invented? No, but it's fabricated. Um, of course we could put re resources there and address it, but it's not, it's not a natural disaster. 
that comes over us. These are political decisions that are being made. The questions of, you know, do you address it or do you not address it? And therefore, I think, and I, I, this is important, I think it is not methodological fetishism to say this is not a refugee crisis. It, this is not a, a game with words that, if it was, I'd be so happy to, to say, you know, let's call it whatever. But I think it is important to say this is not something that the people who have fled their countries are causing for us. They are not the cause of the crisis, so therefore they should. This shouldn't be called a refugee crisis. The cause needs to be um, found somewhere else, um, and there are different options. I think that is important. And now to your question, which I I think is the theological question for this, is like how do we find an answer to this? Um, I've been moved in the in the in the in the fieldwork I've done with um, people who work in refugee relief, um, how that changes people. But it's really so, and I think that comes back to intimacy, yeah. to touch, to certain practice. I mean, this is literal touching, um, not not meta also metaphorical touching, but also literal touching, literal help. Um, and I often have this with students who feel sort of um, fed up, feel like we can't change anything. It's these systems and so on. Feel like I mean, statistically, you can actually show this if you get engaged. Everything seems less daunting on you, and I think that brings us to these kind of practices of where you actually start yeah, engaging, start helping, and that's that's where the that's where it happens. But that's not something you can create with a sermon, and that's not something you can tell people. This is an experience people need to make, and that's the trick. I think that's why it's so difficult because how do you draw them in? In a way, you always already need to know that that's where the change could happen. Right. In philosophy, this is of course been an issue how how where is the source of of of, of morality or or, mm. or compassion Levinas as you probably all know as much as I do as little as I do but it was about the face mm -hmm. of the other, the other yeah. creating the your ev ev evoking your responsibility for your responsibility as it as it were so but, but and this is of course easy to say especially in an academic nice environment like this and it's hard to, to achieve. And I want to get there because uh, there is one elephant in this nice discussion that we haven't mentioned either in the room there or here. And it's another ecological disaster. Not the climate, but it's the media, mm -hmm. an ecological disaster of communication, mm -hmm. uh, of the media ecology, let's mm -hmm. put it that, how we communicate with each other. Uh, to put it mildly, uh, we have been through a revolution that we haven't seen the end of yet. How we communicate with each other. It's a rare exception that we sit here, you know, live bodies in front mm -hmm. of each other. And maybe are able to touch each other, who knows? <laughs> and and uh, in many ways, most communications is, as you know, uh, is not, it's not. What role does that play? Is there any way, I can tell you, in my, in our home, we call this invention, if you so wish, into or intrusion into human communication. We call it Antichrist, as it's theological discourse. Because it's eroding the fundaments of being human, mm -hmm. that is communicating with other human beings. Mm -hmm. So how do we do? What do we do? How do we communicate these very good and beautiful thoughts about how we should counter evil, and, and violence, and because, as you mentioned, uh, Ulrich, these are used, these people are mobilized by these 
fears and emotions against and conspiracies. So, this is, I, I, I would like us to, I have one more topic, but let's finish this topic or talk about, and then I will at the very end open up if, if you don't mind, if there are some people have better questions than mine, <coughs> even, even not better questions, but or better answers. Better answers. <laughs> yeah, that's so, true. what do we do? How do we, how do we re, regain our ability to, to, to gain trust or between other people and communicate? Mm. I know. Shall I just maybe? Sorry. Good luck. Uh, good luck. I mean, I don't want. I, I just want to play the devil's advocate. Okay, maybe go some ahead. of you have like late adolescent and you know that kind of battleground with like controlling social media and 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 then I also realize there is something that I do not get. <laughs> so there is also potency. There is an immediacy. Of course, there is a distraction. There is a, but um, there is some sort of um, I don't know how to put it. There is a flowing to that, that sometimes, you know, like being of different generations, I'm, I'm just wanting to put it out there, that there is also an intergenerational and, you know, sort of multiracial and that perhaps I know is destroying, I know is the Antichrist, you know, the Antichrist, <laughs> Kairos as well, but it's disrupting that. But I also want to play the devil advocate. There is something there too, that perhaps not all of us are able to be in tune with. And so maybe less demonizing and more how we can work through it. I mean, I'm sorry, it's just yeah, blabbering no, no, off no, 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 no. You just, can't, you can't yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so, so what's the next? Yeah. Okay, um, never, you can think about it. Yeah, yeah, I could say something, but I better yeah, leave it can, there. You can come back. You, well, uh, well, I'm I'm hopeless, so I don't think that I'll be uh, giving optimistic <laughs> scenarios and having 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 looked at Russian propaganda for the past exactly. 15 years, so that all of you don't have to, um, I, I I learned that there is an interesting pattern of relativizing facts and believable lies. So basically, it's a believable lie becomes a fact, and then there there is some element of of lie in a, in in a, in a portrayal of event, but it's a believable lie. So what modern Russian state, actually a Russian state before Putin needed loyalty, modern Russian state needs apathy. And so it's both apathy and loyalty in a way. And I think that's an interesting and probably pessimistic also about how modern media is used for being manipulating this and, and somehow creating this world that doesn't really exist, uh, creating threats that are not there and kind of having this imaginary friends and and, and enemies which are, might, might not be there, and this pure instrumentalization of this reality, whether through artificial intelligence, as we have seen in the troll factories in Russia or elsewhere, or, or, or through other kind of uh, mediums. So I think I don't necessarily see that there is a way out of this at the moment, but maybe spirituality, the, the thing that you were talking about is some kind of medium. I don't know, but realistically, that's where we're at at the so, moment. So we, we are in a... We are in big trouble simply because if we cannot communicate properly, somehow adjust to our ex our experience of of reality, to our vision of reality. Someone had very good terms for this. Uh, I forgot them. <laughs> One of the between the anyway between what we perceive and what is, and now we can perceive anything as real. Any fantasy can look absolutely perfectly. So uh, this distinction, 
which means that people can get completely crazy. Political leaders can get completely crazy, do the most crazy things as we just experienced in the United Kingdom, and, and because they live in a an, an world which is not moderated by human experience, real experience. So having, this, is, this, is, this is the challenge I see. And, and you, are, you, you as academics are, are spoiled by having people who listen to you, debate you, mm. maybe take some, <laughs> may, maybe are impacted by what you write. I don't know. What do you say? You, you look. I'm, I'm very wary to speak out on things like this because I feel like um, there's kind of a cult of expertise and that we're supposedly somehow going to have the answer. And I usually say, let's let's turn it around and let's talk to the younger people in the room. Let's talk to the students. Let's talk to the people who are using the social media and who are really good at it. And let's see what they think about uh, the proliferation of fake news and the kinds of demagoguery and hate and you know racialized hate that's going on and how they might suggest that this gets countered effectively for a newer generation coming up. So rather than propose to speak, I guess I would just propose to listen. That's a, that's a cheap, cheap escape, no, no. I, I would say. But that's okay. I accept but, it. But, can, but, I, can I, just yeah, you can I get to fight back? I thought you no, said no. a sheep escape. And I was like, yeah, really? Yeah, that's, that's exciting. That's Do they have sheep a, running around? A sheep Sweden? or cheap. No, but what I, I want to come back to the just to the touch could, could to we, the no. to be touched. No, but could we How have it the the female the, the young women uh, Iranian appraisal now without it? I doubt. Right. So yep, that's right. Just, so listen to them. Yeah. yeah. Listen to them. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I okay. <laughs> I won't argue. We are debating. <laughs> I, the problem is that that I'm not sure that these regimes that are based on these fake news factories and violence are easy to, to beat. Even that's, I'm, I'm, a, bit, I'm a bit wary about that. I, 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 mm -hmm. I'm very happy, of course, that people are trying to bring that shit down, the Iranian government, but you see what's happening. You see what, I, so it's, it's, what I would love to see is, is a way of convincing enough people even within these establishments, by words, by communication, by debate, by real news, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But maybe that will change. I don't. We need to change the establishments. Who's in the establishments, and who gets to speak? And this goes back so to how your do you talk change, earlier. How, how, do you, how do we do? I don't know. We we do some of the work we're doing here, and yeah. we continue to confront the the crises that we that we face, which includes rampant greed and global capitalism, climate climate crisis, and white supremacy and patriarchy. Those are my list. There you go. I'm done. Thanks, Ulish. Uh, you want to go on this? And um, I don't really want to go on this, but um, I, I do want to add two things that maybe bring us back to the touch actually, so it might also work uh, for the purpose of discussion overall. When, when Tonic, when you said um, the Russian state doesn't want loyalty but apathy, or, or maybe both, both um, and you, 
I find really fascinating this idea of apathy. It reminded me of um, I'm giving away, I'm a fanboy of uh, Dorothee Zoller's uh, theology from the 1960s, where she was all about suffering and how we have to relearn how to suffer. I think suffering is actually a dangerous term, and I wouldn't use that, but she did that in the 60s. But there are all sorts of good reasons to rather talk about vulnerability, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think what is what is interesting there is to say you need to be you need to expose yourself to pain. And she said, all our theologies have become apathetic. They're, they're trying to avoid pain. And our lives are, this is, I'm preaching Zola, um, our, our lives have been uh, structured to avoid pain. Um, but the change happens when you actually accept that there's some pain involved. Um, not in terms of redemptive suffering, but in terms of exposing yourself to what is going on. Um, and I think that, that mm -hmm. is that is one thing that social media can um, hinder you from doing because it keeps you on your sofa or yeah. uh, wherever. But it's also something that social media can get you to the action in Iran, for instance. So, um, yeah. But I think the vulnerability of opening oneself up to to some. I mean, it goes all the back way back to Levinas, and then you know all of these um, thoughts. But I think it's not something purely cognitive. It is something. That is mm -hmm. visceral mm -hmm. experience. You need to be in the spot, and you need to put yourself in the spot. Otherwise, nothing's gonna happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's very good. Very good. Very interesting. But the visceral, I have a, I have a visceral suspicion of the visceral, uh, especially when thousands of people become obsessed with something. This was for the good. We know that that can happen for the bad as well. So let's let's pray and hope uh, for 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 this crisis that we are in to uh, be an opportunity for change and uh, that's it's it, it, i think it's it can it can also crisis between chinese is an opportunity or possibility i've heard it anyway it could be i will now uh, take the liberty to to open the floor because uh, we have a plenty of time actually someone you can also say something, but to, to try to address perhaps uh, the panel or the table. We'll start cold calling if you guys don't talk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, All the yeah. professors up here, so you know, watch out, lady in the green shirt. Did you do the reading? Oh, there, that, we have we have someone. Okay, so say your names. That's always funny too. Okay, my name is Adam. Yeah. Go ahead, Anna. Uh, speaking with a couple of younger generations, uh, an ex-social media user, I think it's uh, safe that uh, the amount of apathy uh, that has been shown by people around me is very correlated to the amount of social media users. So just state that as a fact for my own experience. But uh, it's very interesting what decision that we have here, that social media can be used for something for good and also something for something bad. Uh, We've seen uh, Twitter and Facebook trying to manage this with uh, hate speech policies and banning certain people and regulating certain sorts of speech, but also their algorithms are tuned towards uh, outrageous uh, content to generate more uh, like, uh, reactions, reactions and stuff like this, yeah. inflammatory mm -hmm. content. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any ideas how, how this, how, how we should regulate this to get the most good out of these uh, hyper-effective communication devices that are, are going to be more effective and more 
possibilities to explain reality because of art, because of AR and VR, more, more mm -hmm. uh, hyper advanced possibilities of getting detached from reality and not thinking about food, but just staring at the, the food, like, like staring at the food rather instead of picking your car. Uh, how, how should this be regulated? How can you? Well, Elon Musk is about to show us, right? <laughs> so I have to defer to him in his great wisdom. No, I think it's a. I, I think it's a. It's a good question. It's a, It's the difficult question. We all know that this is this is a crucial problem that we have because <laughs> if we cannot face reality like climate change, if we don't realize that this demands some kind of human action. We have to do something, and we have to do this and that and that. Uh, and if we don't do it, uh, we have a problem. So, anyone wants to comment, or you can, or you can, yeah, no, you can. You can Marietta had her hand up in the back. Little, People get changed by your preaching, Doug, but uh, yeah. not necessarily by all preaching. Um, now, I think this is a very important point, but but my fear was simply, I, and in general, of course, people can get changed by a by a you know be on brimstone sermon or or some some other. No, I'm I'm totally on board. But I think what is what is interesting is that you immediately also talked about you know sharing scripture readings, singing together and stuff, and that's not what I, you know, describe as a sermon. So you immediately pointed to more interactive formats. Um, and of course, you can also have a sermon that is very interactive, but I think there's a difference of, of one person speaking at a crowd 
or genuine interaction. And that's why I'm a little bit, that doesn't mean like we should stop having sermons in, in church. And I think sermons can do a lot. But I think there is something to be said for more interactive, communicative um, formats. Because um, I think in the end, it's the, it's the encounter. That can happen in a, in a, in a sermon as well and uh, between the, 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 uh, the congregation and the preacher. But my hunch would be that it's more likely in more, you know, um, non-hierarchical or at least more more flat um, hierarchies, uh, ways of talking with each other and to each other rather than one person um, preaching to the crowd. But that, I'm not saying that that would be impossible. Of course not. And I've heard some very good sermons that I've had changed by. So I'm absolutely on board with the general point. It would be, have to be much more nuanced. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, here I'm just sort of borrowing from a colleague of mine who sort of does a lot of work on pilgrimages. And, you know, I knew that, but also sociologically, uh, people walking the land, especially in Europe, is something. And, and you could call it pilgrimage, you could call it um, rambling, you can call like long distance walking. But there is something about the connection of a group to the land while you move that is really something quite interesting. And it seems also sort of relatively young people. So also, what do we envisage and, you know, promote? Well, promote is not that word. What we allow to be together of things that, you know, used to be also an archive of the past, and now they are invented through cultural patrimony, which has got other issues. And uh, <laughs> But, you know, there are certain things about movement. And I think the movement together, the moving together has got something about... You know, the religious as a force in movement, the politics as a force in movement. So how do we make movements in different orientation? And, you know, around Europe... Well, the orientation is uh, somehow is important. You know, we oh, can yeah. have moments, oh, yeah. moments oh, yeah. that I wouldn't like to oh, yeah. see. Oh, yeah. Yoga okay. class starts at 6.15, for those of you who want to move. Cool. <laughs> Yoga class. Movement together. I'm serious. If we're going to talk about all forms of movement, I'd like to move beyond and outside. Only the, the Christian sermon as valuable as I think it is, and really think about other ways of moving together and of being embodied in community. And I think yoga, very seriously, is one of those ways. Thank you. My name is Piria. Uh, talking about sermons and singing together and, uh, and being moved, I just want to mention, sorry, just a detail that it has moved me. Uh, there is an Instagram called Ukraine Now, in Swedish, Ukraine Nu, and it is edited by a famous uh, uh, Swedish history professor, Peter Englund. Yeah. So, and um, what he collects and gets sent in to him is our small video uh, publications from teleparents taken at the front. And there is one which is, I found, very moving, talking here about sermons and singing together. It's a battalion of Ukrainian soldiers somewhere uh, in the forest, sun shining. They sing together uh, the Ukrainian national hymn, and a, and a solo violin accompanying them. Only that. And if you stay, it's only about 20 seconds, 30 seconds, but if you stay, it will repeat itself, and it repeats itself all, uh, all the time. Uh, and so the comment. But you have to be on Instagram to see that. Yeah, you have. Well. Okay. No, yeah, but yes. Okay. It, yes. No, 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 no. It's, just, so, it's so not. It's not critic. No, I just wanted to know how I'll find it. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be on Instagram. Okay. Uh, but it, this also connects to the platform, the social platforms, mm -hmm. what yeah. they mm -hmm. can be used for. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the, it's, it's such an existential, strong feeling here too, because what the comment says is that 
this battalion, these men, now singing together, in a few minutes, in a few hours' time or a few days' time, they, many of them will be dead because they sing mm -hmm. this just before they go in action. So, just a, just a, yeah. just an example here of kind of sermon. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think we are. Ent you know, you also probably you all have seen the series Games of Thrones. Have you seen that? No, have you, thank have you, you. been glued to that series? No, I have. And uh, and the overarching theme, as you all know, I've seen it is winter is coming, and I have a sense that winter is coming in in a, in a more than one sense. Uh, one can look upon that as with 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 horror and terror, which I think is proper. But uh, maybe we need to face, have an existential meeting with, or a meeting with our existential being, which is, has been, we have been a bit sheltered from that. I, I, would, I would like it to be a light uh, meeting, uh, not too much, but enough to awaken our sense of being, our sense of responsibility to this planet that we, we, we somehow still have. Uh, I have to say that, that I have come around to that stupid belief or, or cynic even that maybe we need some some tough experience. And I think that what's happening now in Europe has, as I have seen it, awakened good things. The sense of European solidarity that was almost gone and hopefully it might be reinforced. Maybe uh, even it, had, it can create counter-movements, create a European narrative again, which was almost killed by all the na new nationalist awakenings and the stupid Brexit and whatever have you. And, and, um, but that's a hope. Uh, but I, I, see, I see that for all the bad things that are now happening, uh, maybe that, that could contribute to awaken a sense of collective responsibility for things I I don't know it still needs we still need to be able to communicate this wisely to each other mm -hmm.